I want to make it suck less for the next me. I am unwilling to give up. That I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders. We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited to have my next guest here. We have Matthew Zachary here, who is the founder and CEO of Offscript Media. And maybe you haven't heard of Offscript Media, but you are going to really, really want to dive into Offscript Media when I share a little bit about his story. So he is the founder. You'll always be the founder, as we were saying, but also the CEO of Offscript Media, which is the first audio broadcasting company dedicated to cancer research and patient support. We all know someone, uh, if not ourselves, who has gone through cancer. And uh, Matthew previously had founded another organization called Stupid Cancer in 2007, which was the largest nonprofit advocating for young adults diagnosed with cancer. So why did he do this? What was his purpose in doing it? Matthew has an amazing story. At 21, he was diagnosed with a terminal brain cancer, which derailed his plans of becoming a comp- I'm not going to pronounce this right. Compositional pianist. Thank you. My <laughs> Did I did I say that correctly? A film composer, but there's always a running gag with him whether it's pianist or pianist. Pianist, exactly. There you go. <laughs> it's it, it's uh, the afternoon right now, so my I'm a little tongue tied, but I just on a Friday to too. On a Friday, yes, exactly. And so, with only six months to live, uh, I mean, absolutely insane uh, to ever get that message. But a decade later, after a full recovery, he decides to dedicate his life to helping other young adults whose lives have been turned upside down by their cancer diagnosis. So we are so lucky to have Matthew here with us today to share a little bit more about the story. So I'm excited to get going and and have everybody engaged in this conversation with me. So welcome, Matthew. I really am excited to have you here. Kara, it's been a long time coming. I really appreciate being here. And hello to all your fabulous listeners. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So take us back to the beginning. What was, I always ask people this, like, what's the beginning story? Like, who who, who were you as a kid? What, like, like, did you know that any of this stuff was going to happen and you would be doing what you were doing today? I was born and raised in New York. My mom is a film historian and a uh, amateur pianist. She taught first grade for her entire life. And my dad is a Bob Vila kind of guy. He was the assistant principal of high school and taught all the stuff that isn't academic for 30 years. So I, I was reared in this world of creative and arts and occupational therapy and, and all sorts of stuff. I, I had no aspirations to do, do anything in music until I just 
<laughs> my dad bought my mom a piano one day when I was in like seventh grade and I came home and there's a piano in the house. And I kind of said, I know what this is. How do you play? And my mom said, you move your fingers like this. And I said, oh, like this. And I did it. And she like had a stroke. Like no one does this. <laughs> so I had lessons like 24 hours later and I was classically trained for, for 10 years. So I became the piano guy on Staten Island. But because I, you know, was the son of a film historian, I knew all the music from all the films of the wow. last hundred years. And I wanted to learn to play them. And I became a Billy Joel freak and the girls wanted to hear Journey in Chicago. And I learned jazz. So that's the story. I, I, I kind of knew within, I don't know, a few years of playing that I wanted to be the next John Williams. So interesting. So you played the piano and composed music for at, from a very, very young age. And what was the career that you ultimately imagined for yourself? Well, I, I had that. I went to undergraduate at Binghamton in New York for music, computer science, and sociology, true major. And I dabbled in musical theater because I'm just a, a nerd and I love all that stuff. I applied to USC film school. I applied to several film schools to get in as a, as a, as a composer for like a four year master's in film composition to be eventually interning with the likes of, you know, James Horner and Hans Zimmer. Um, and you know, man plans, God laughs, but that was my goal. I wanted to move to LA where you have no water, but you had water back then. This was 98 (laughs) and enter Hollywood and just write music and compose for film and television. So interesting. So 21 years old, take us back to that moment. So during the summer of 95, right before my senior year began, my left hand started acting all wacky. And any musicians in the audience, anyone that knows who, uh, that knows what um, arpeggiation is, uh, it means when you run your fingers up and down the piano really fast. It's how quickly mm-hmm. you can be dexterous and, and, and hit the notes. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
no English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. Uh, I was experiencing some challenges in arpeggiating for no reason in my left hand when I got back to school, showed up out of nowhere, and it kept getting worse. And I'm like, I'm 21, you know, you're supposed to be stupid and invincible and fantastic when you're 21. I didn't think anything of it. And then it got worse and I went to the doctors repeatedly and they're like, oh, it's nothing. Carpal tunnel syndrome. Just put your backpack on the other shoulder, you know, or whatever. And then eventually I started slurring my speech. And that was when I'm like, oh, maybe there's something really wrong with me. And I went home and I saw my doctor. He's like, yeah, uh, you got a problem. So then I kind of finished the semester. And after 
uh, finals ended, I was no longer able to use my left hand. I couldn't grip a pen because I'm a lefty. I couldn't play at all. Um, and I had an MRI and they found a giant golf ball inside my brain. And <laughs> I was like, part of me was like, thank God it's something because I thought it was literally going crazy. And then the other part was like, what the hell is going on? And it, I'm making light of it now because it was a quarter century ago, but it was very surreal. It was incomprehensible that this could happen to someone, not like me, but someone young. This doesn't yeah. happen to 21-year-olds. And that was when the rabbit hole opened. And you felt like it was almost overnight that this happened. I mean, it was, you know, you look back and probably connect the dots a little bit, but I mean, like there, there was nothing that you did that you felt like caused this. I'm sure your brain, you went through that whole process, like thinking, what the heck? I mean, all those years of dipping my head in toxic chemicals paid off. <laughs> what, right? I mean, what else can you <laughs> say about it? It's crazy. So yeah. you went through treatment. Yeah. I was very fortunate, even though I was 21 and not a kid, I was in kid cancer land. They put me in pediatrics. So I was a little weird because I'm meeting like two-year-olds and babies with cancer. And it was really awkward because everyone thought I was a parent of a patient. Mm -hmm. But uh, the fact that I was in pediatrics was actually better than if I were treated with geriatrics because I kind of, they, they cared about who I was. They cared about what was going to happen to me because I wasn't 80. Uh, they they banked my sperm because they knew that I could potentially be infertile, which I was. They prepared me with social work uh, just in case I needed to worry about, you know, dating and whatever. This was before Obamacare. So I was on my parents' insurance till I was 24. So I had like a three-year window to figure out what the hell to do. Because mm -hmm. this stuff was crazy expensive. Uh, and, and yeah, I just kind of muddled through what they thought was the best treatments for me because there was nothing in the 1990s for anyone. And I had surgery, which you kind of need for brain cancer, which was eight hours long and tragic and terrible and I nearly died. And then I had radiation therapy, which was the standard protocol because there is no chemotherapy for brain cancer in the 1990s. And <laughs> that was my spring of 1996. I called the university. I told them I may not graduate on time. I might not be alive. I called film school and this was the worst day of my life at the time where I got my deposit back and I would not be going to grad school. Wow. That's, that's just crazy. And so, wow. I mean, I, I'm just hearing you talk about this. So is this, so they, they tell you that you have six months to live. I mean, what? And so, I mean, amazing that you're still here today and fully recovered but how how does that happen how do they t you know tell you that you're you may not be around and and you are do you just feel like i mean what what were you going through at that moment because had you kind of planned at this point that you might not be around i mean not going to graduate school not sort yeah. of planning for your future but like where when did you start to see well actually I think I'm okay. Yeah. When I kept on living <laughs> past my expiration date. Yeah. You know, it was just the amount of time. I, I think a lot of people in the audience, I say the audience because I'm just a theater guy, but the listenership uh, can resonate with the fact that you're the, the last day of anything is the scariest. And when they said yeah. you're cured, go home. <laughs> that's not really the end of the story, but like, that's how they treated the cancer patients in the 1990s. And I was done in like 
you know, April, May of 96 and like, here, go live your life. You're 22 and you're, we nearly killed you. <laughs> I lost, I lost my immune system. I lost my hair, my fertility, like my, my, I lost 110 pounds. I lost many friends. I lost the ability to go to grad school. I lost the ability to play piano. Like I was a shell of a human being. And they're like, oh, you're done. Go, go, you'll be fine. So thankfully it's not like that today, but for me and others like me who were diagnosed in the salad days, um, you kind of just have to learn to fend for yourself because there was no peer support. There was no, we had like AOL floppy disks, right? That's the closest thing to peer support yeah. we had. And there was nothing in play, especially for 21-year-olds or 22-year-olds, let alone kids and breast cancer was the big thing. I just kind of flotsamed my way through a plan B, which became plan A, which was I fixed computers. I just liked to tinker, going back to my dad. So I got a job that I hated having to have because I couldn't go to grad school. I, I wasn't able to move out of my parents' house because I was so terribly sick. All my friends that didn't abandon me just went to grad school. So I was mm -hmm. literally alone. But over time, back in those days, it's important to recognize that they didn't consider you cured until you were five years out. That's changed now with chronic disease and managed care and designer medicines or whatever. So the countdown to five years was the most terrifying time of my life. Like, am I really in the clear when I hit that five-year mark? If, if I'm four years and 11 months out, you know? So my 90s sucked. I lost my 20s just in this, this rampant, horrible, yeah. you know, end of the decade. Crazy. And so you're waiting, hoping at this point that you're in the clear, as I mentioned to you, I have a nephew that I know very well, those five years, that was like the magic number. And we kept, I, I kept thinking every time my brother calls me on the phone, um, it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's good. Hopefully it's not going to be that bad news. It's a scary, scary time for everybody, uh, involved and, and for sure the individual. So you're doing computers what was the moment that you woke up and you said, I've got to actually use my experience to help other people get through this really rough time? Well, a lot of it stemmed from how long it took me to rehabilitate my left hand and play piano again. Because it was the one thing I wanted to have control over. Mm -hmm. it was like cancer took away my ability to be a professional pianist. The least I could do was try to retrain myself and take something back. And that was... For me, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know you could help. I'll jump ahead to come back, but when I met a guy who was my first peer, right? It took me seven years to meet a guy who had brain cancer in his 20s, which is ridiculous because there were tons of us. Yeah, I yeah. mean, seven years. Yeah, uh, he happened to be on the board of directors of one of the leading nonprofits in DC that does cancer policy and advocacy for the last 30 years. I kind of like deep end of the pool stuff. But he asked me, how'd you like to be a cancer advocate? And I said, what the hell's a cancer advocate? Because you don't think to know what these things are if you don't know you can help somebody. So I rehabbed my left hand. It took me five years. I recorded some CDs for myself. I wrote uh, 60 original compositions on the piano. And I just did it for myself. And eventually those CDs got leaked out to all these places. And that's how I met this guy named Craig. And then, you know, I'm, I'm muddling through computer land and I worked in agency life and did all this sort of brand macromedia flash pdf 2000 stuff and it wasn't until i met him that i realized that advocacy to me was something i never considered but it meant making sure that the next me 
doesn't have to go through as much crap as I did. What, what can I do? It's a very simple pay it forward philosophy in humanity. I want to make it suck less for the next me, period. And what does that actually mean? I didn't know yet. And so this is 2006, 2007-ish? No, this is 2004. 2004. This is like Livestrong, Wristband, Sheryl Crow, Lance Armstrong, Oprah Heyday. Okay. And where? what was the point when you said, I'm going to, I'm going to formalize this in some way and create a group? What, what? Was this stupid cancer in, in 2007, or was there something right before that? Uh, I, I muddled through the idea of a nonprofit. It, it took many different shapes over time, but I really approached it almost like a product, like a brand. I knew that any knee-jerk effort to get into charity, I, I wouldn't know what I was doing. Because mm-hmm. I don't know what I, who knows what they're doing when they start a company. You think you know what you do. You have great ideas, but like until the, until, until the rubber hits the road, right? I did eventually peel myself away from my career and I quit everything to start what was then called I'm too young for this, which was stupid cancer. And then it became stupid cancer by just doing a lot of survey analysis. What's the competition? Like think of a business plan, right? Think of what it took for you to start hint, how much you had to go through the investor stuff, market, all that stuff. I did that to figure out if I'm going to jump into charity, I don't just want to be another ribbon company. That's telling you, here, you'll be fine. You know, I, I don't want to be a a, 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 a a kind of like a, just a shallow Hallmark card cancer organization. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to disrupt as much as I can back when that word meant something. And it was basically this entirely countercultural approach to advocacy, which is we're letting you be angry. We're not telling you it's okay. And I had the, oh, everything kind of fomented in the summer of 06 and I spent six months building the, the the brand identity and the case and the website and everything. Because, you know, you did everything on your own back then. Yeah. There wasn't Wix. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? right. And we launched in January 07 and the New York Times did a piece on us two weeks later, which came out of nowhere. And that exploded everything. And 07 was just this, this avalanche of early what the hell's going on success that proved the point. People are tired of being pandered to. We don't want more restaurants. We want permission to be pissed and a way to become an advocate. That's amazing. So how did you get the word out? What was like the first thing that you did? I mean, you said you were establishing the nonprofit and you were, um, you know, obviously re- doing research and getting the branding correct. And But then how did you, how did you think about getting the word out? I mean, you're sitting in New York, uh, obviously 2007 online is happening so it wasn't like right you know 1977 but it but still it, it was it, i mean it must have been a real challenge and here you had never done a nonprofit. i mean you you had never founded one before How, like where did you even start literally had no idea what i was doing you know buzz light you're falling with style was like kind of like the plan <laughs> all day every day i mean i had amassed a fairly decent rolodex by 06 having worked since I met Craig in 04, within two years, I was the only concert pianist. You know, <laughs> I was the only brain cancer guy. I was the only, you know, I, I was the only guy that cursed a lot more than everyone else. And and I had CDs and, you know, this perception of having been in magazines because people like my CDs or whatever. So there was a, a unique zeitgeist around what I represented because I wasn't a researcher. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't a, a, a cancer doctor. I wasn't a nonprofit. I wasn't a policy person. I wasn't in any of those spaces, I was just this 
this guy who had all these things and I wanted to start something new. So when I started the organization, I was like, what? Everyone's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, I'm like, all right, this is for all of us. But then honestly, the, the New York Times piece came out, 30,000 people hit the site that day. Uh, I was offered a, a talk radio show in 2007 and I became the Incredible. world's first healthcare radio show guy before we called it podcasting. What was it on, by the way? It was on, um, God, it, it was a live stream and it went on AM radio every now and then. Hmm. But remember live, like if you missed it, tough luck. Like that was the allure. Right. You know, everyone's got to listen to this crazy show. It had, a, it had a chat room at the same, it was crazy what we could do over like DSL and dial up, you know, toward the pre-real internet. And then I think what really happened that was, came out of nowhere, you talk about how, how do people learn about this, was uh, we were ranked a number 17 in the Time Magazine Best 50 website of the year in August of 07. I, I don't know how that happened, but then the millions of people found out about stupidcancer.org and the floodgates. Then the money started coming, then I started hiring, and then it really became a real business. And I, I never expected like the, we didn't even say the word viral back then. There was no Twitter, right? There was no anything. Facebook barely got started. Obama did it in 07. I'm like, oh, what's this Facebook thing? So it was just this total free range explosion. So you think that between the article, so using press, I mean, you didn't plan on doing that, but the press kind of kickstarted it. And then people started knowing that you had, you know, this platform, this radio show, and do, and do you think it was primarily just word of mouth? I mean, were people telling other organic. people? Yeah, that's amazing. Old school, grassroots, organic word of mouth. For, I, because there was nothing. Yeah. Right? I mean, let, let's really go back. You know, let's go back to 2007. There was nothing for anything. Like, we were still scared to put our credit cards on eBay in 2007. So true. Right? <laughs> were there message like, boards? Did you have, like, what was going on at that so, point? So at that point, it was either Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera had message boards on their, their mm -hmm. early websites. So I stole the code. And I made mess, stupid cancer message boards based on either Christina Aguilera's code or whatever it was. It was oh open God. source. So I wasn't getting sued by Christina Aguilera. But we had the first like cancer community boards for young adults, for Gen Xers who were in their 20s and early 30s back then. And they're flocking because I don't want to talk to geezers. I don't want to be with little kids. I want to have a hive, a tribe of just Gen Xers. I mean, it wasn't millennials yet. They were in like high school. Uh, uh, for people like me, I want to be angry. I want to express myself. I want my voice. To be, I want to feel seen and heard by people like me. That had never happened before. So it was this reciprocal pay it forward that everybody flocked to this brand new shiny object that actually helped them. And it, it wasn't done in any way like I'm planning this, it's working. Like there's no Dr. Evil Pinky that I'm working according to plan. Everything just kept happening because I think right place, right time, right cause, right promise. That's wild. It's so amazing. I, I'm just like what you've done is just... It was so meant to be in so many levels, right? I mean, it just, it was so needed and, and just built organically. So what was probably the most difficult part of starting this business? I always think about, you know, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit business, we always look back and I think it's always really important to look back and think about, 
the mistakes you made or some of the hard challenges? What would you say to that? Well, again, it was a different moment in time. Similar to how there was no internet, there was also no real regulations on what nonprofits can and can't do. No one got slapped on the wrist. And if you didn't have the right board minutes, no one sued you. You didn't get audited. Everything changed after a bunch of stuff uh, in like 2011, 12, when everything, all the scandals of the nonprofits and the Boy Scout stuff came out. So I think the biggest challenge I had for the first three years was what the hell am I doing? Mm-hmm. You know, I, we didn't have money to hire a staff. There were tons of volunteers. How do you ma- manage volunteers, right? What does a board of directors really look like? Who should be on there? How do you deal with egos and personalities? And, you know, nonprofits aren't shareholders. They're volunteers who should be doing things. And that was really kind of the, the biggest, almost like a fight or flight. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm re- reacting more than I'm being proactive because that's just the way everything was cascading. Understanding payroll <laughs> was like, what is this? How do we deal with that? But it really wasn't until like formal infrastructure started to take place when we became like, you know, uh, had a bookkeeper, <laughs> had a tax preparer, you know, had a, a financial person on the staff. And once there was some basic structure, the fun really started because we had runway, we had revenue, and we weren't donor dependent, which was also something I didn't want to be. And and mm-hmm. if people listening have nonprofit experience, every charity is donor dependent. You mm-hmm. want mom to give you couch cushion dollars. And I didn't want that. So the way I approached the you know innovation at the time to keep it sustainable was we're becoming the largest Gen X angry mob of consumers you could possibly ever want to be attached to. So it was cause marketing. That was the thing back then. So I just leaned into cause marketing and said, hey, I've got... 150,000 people listening to this radio show every Monday, you should advertise or sponsor these episodes. And, you know, there was no, back when CPM was like media companies calling people and dialing things up. I just, I knew how to do that. So that's kind of how things started to come together. The chessboard was slowly getting set um, by this, this perspective of, 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 of sustainability. That's amazing. So people, so it was all ad supported. Sponsorships and ads were what drove uh, the organization for a little while. And the radio show drove most of that revenue because we had, I think, a million listeners by the end of the first year. Wow. That's amazing. And during that time too, I mean, that was, that's incredible. I mean, this was before iTunes, iTunes was like, you know, you couldn't get podcasts on iTunes until like 2009. You know, iHearts, there was no Spotify back then. You know, you could only listen to it on Monday at 8 p.m. And if you missed it, you missed it. That's just how TV used to work. That's incredible. Well, it's such an incredible story just in founding that. I mean, just, and, and then you didn't stop there. So, so basically what, what happened with stupid cancer? Well, it fourteen million dollars, and thirteen years later, it's still the largest young adult cancer organization in the world. It, it has changed policy for the better for millions of people. It has redefined guidelines and standards of care. It has recruited tens of thousands of people into clinical trials. It has advanced medical care. It has changed everything. It it, it forced fertility benefit coverage at hundreds of companies so women who get cancer can have their eggs frozen for free as a benefit. It's done social and cultural 
real damage, good kind of damage, big dent in the universe. Yeah, um, I love it. And yeah. and I think what, like, can you imagine, you just wanted a forum for people to just be able to vent, right? And and what, and the good that it has done is just incredible. And, and I th that must feel really good. I mean, when you think back on it, it was hard. I mean, I'm sure just like building any company, it's it's tough. But I mean, to be able to build a company that really does that much good, I mean, that's just so incredible. You're right, though. In the end, I, I really just wanted to create what I wish that I had. And, yeah. I, and no one had any idea what it would become. So you are no longer running it. Are you still involved in, in the board? Uh, I stepped down in 2018 after a six-month de-velcroing of myself from the sedimentary layers of the organization. Passed the torch. They have new leadership now. I did leave the board just for the sake of letting new leadership make it their own kind of company. I didn't really want to have any... I was kind of like an in-case emergency break glass and I'll pop out situation for, for a year and a half. I'm very involved in their strategic planning right now. The new CEO and I are very, very good friends. I help them raise a, a bunch of money and they're great partners to this new venture that I have, which is an extension of everything I did there, which goes back to what is all script media and I'm back behind a mic. The most important thing that I think historically I can bring to the national conversation is talk radio. And once I left the stupid cancer show, which was the name of the broadcast, four and a half million listeners later was gone. And I took a sabbatical and nearly every single person in my universe said to me, you better get back behind a mic somehow and make a lot of money doing it. And that's the origins of Offscript Media. I love it. So you started Offscript Media last year and like, what was the biggest challenge? I mean, coming off of this incredible thing that you had built and stepping away from it, I, I, I know I talked to many founders who have, who have founded one company and they've done a similar situation to you that if you're still sticking around an organization, sitting on a board or whatever, it's like, sometimes it's hard for the new leadership to kind of do what they need to be doing. So I totally get that. But you go off and you start this new company. Uh, what? So tell us a little bit more about Offscript Media. You talked about it as an extension, but I think it's a little more than that. Yeah, I mean, it, the seed was planted because the one thing I could take with me from Stupid Cancer was my voice. Mm -hmm. And the platform that, I'll just call it radio because we're old, like radio works. The totally. world has gotten so complicated, we missed the almost the, the, the sinful pleasure of single sensory audio in your ears with a person who you like to listen to. Yeah, It's not social media, it's media. And I felt like there was a hunger for a return to that because there weren't any companies that existed that I felt like I'm gonna go to The Ringer and tell them, hey, we should do a health spinoff on The Ringer or go to Wondery and say this. They're like, this isn't a news organization, it's not a sports organization, it's not political like Crooked. It's not going to be derivative like pineapple. You know, what should exist in the entertainment audio space in healthcare? It's a giant ocean to boil, but where do you start? And the, the seeds were planted by all the people in my network who agreed that <laughs> if you try to create the largest listenership in the country in health, uh, they will come. It's one of those, like, if you build it, they will come and they will come, not like the and we think we're going to do stuff and people will show up. Just the notion 
of a podcast network mm-hmm. of dozens of shows with highly charismatic DJ hosts like me talking about things people actually want to listen to, coupled with the idea of long-form documentary series that are social justice-oriented, and the idea of using listenership as opportunities to create more advocates, to get more policies done, to almost funnel them to opportunities that can shift the way health policy is organized in this country, and to look at audio as an opportunity for research and ways to improve mental health. And that wasn't done. It had never been done. So it was a candy store of opportunity to build this. And we've moved even since we started almost two years ago out of oncology into mental health, into cannabis, into Mm -hmm. uh, Silicon Valley digital health investor leadership culture. Um, multiple sclerosis, breast cancer specific, you know, we're really, we have 16 million people listening to our shows and series after 20 months. And I think from that perspective, it sounds like a great number, but if everyone was happy enough with what was going on, we'd have no listeners. Mm -hmm. There's clearly an appetite for mostly Americans or our listenership to hear and not see. I love that. I read an article actually in my research from People Magazine, and they were talking about off-script media and and uh, how it it just really elevates the voices that so many people. I, I think like it, when I hear you talking about this, I mean you're you're a real leader. I mean I don't know that you sort of like put stakes in the ground to say I'm going to be a leader. Or I'm going to you know be a success, but you did that, right? Sometimes you need that person to put that direction in place and hold on to the stakes and then figure out how can you, how can you do what so many other people really want to see done? And that's, that's what I got out of that People Magazine article too, that the, the, the end game here is really, you know, helping to create policy and, and helping people to really, uh, you know, get what they need to get done, but you are leading a lot of those efforts. And I mean, you should be incredibly proud because that's not easy to do. And unfortunately, many people just go to sleep and just decide, ah, someone else will do it, or it must not be that important. And that's why it hasn't gotten done yet. I mean, I'm sure you'll nod your head when I say this, and this is really endemic of of, of genuine leadership is, you know, you tend to want to feel in a humble sense that if you don't do it, it won't get done. Mm-hmm. And then you find other people who want to help you do it. And that's the greatest gift when you find others like you who want to join you with humility and no ego that just know that if, if we don't do it, it won't get done. Not just if I don't do it, it won't get done. How do you find people to support your efforts? Uh, I'm a chick magnet. Totally kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at, at this point in my career, I'm, I, I'm very famous in a very small pond and yep. I'm, I'm a notable figure. I own that. And people just know me in, in many different circles, and they're very intrigued at what the hell Matt's going to do next. It's very, it's very Howard Sternish, but not with the, you know, half the people can't wait to see what I do next, and they hate it, and half the people can't wait to see do I and they love it. People are excited to see what I'm doing next. And it's just all about, you know, this relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, I've we, I basically grown up with hundreds of people in the industry who are now CEOs of companies. And if we, we were like peon nothings, you know, 20 years ago, 
we're all excited for ourselves and the success we've done. And I guess the best way to answer that question is by using a Steve Jobs quote, which I think he stole from someone, but I'm going to say it's a Steve Jobs quote. Never give people what they want. You give them mm -hmm. what they never knew they needed. Yeah. And if you think about the content we're producing, no one ever wakes up and says, I can't wait to have to listen to a podcast on multiple sclerosis when I get it. Mm -hmm. Everything we're doing is antithetical to discovery consumption culture. And we're proving though that when you enter the, oh shit, something's bad store that you didn't want to go shopping in, there's a thing for that, that you might find valuable to you. And then you become a brand ambassador client for life. What do you think the cancer advocates of the past can teach the cancer advocates of today? I know you're teeing this up because I'm, <laughs> I'm here to semi-promote this amazing documentary we just released yeah. to the universe called The Cancer Mavericks. I've never been a documentarian. I've never been a narrator. But one of the blessings of this company in, in its incredible financial success in the first 18 months is we had the benefit of doing something that's been a dream of mine for 15 years. And this comes back to the fact that it's 2021, thankfully not 2020. It is the 50th anniversary of Nixon's war on cancer, 50 years. Don't get one 50 year anniversary. So I wanted to tell the story about the people, not the medicine, not the disease itself, the human beings who no one's ever heard of that did the most insanely incredible things to get us from there to here. Names you've never heard of before that did miraculous, impossible things, forcing doctors, forcing the government, forcing the NCI, literally doing die-ins and sit-ins similar to any other social justice movement. So we, we've debuted the Cancer Mavericks. Uh, it's an eight-part series. It's dropping monthly episode five drops as of next week of this recording. Uh, and uh, we have Patrick Dempsey involved. We're very excited to have uh, many other massive notable figures from the, the government. And the whole point of it is to teach history past this prologue. Mm -hmm. Where are we at today in terms of what does the next 10 years of advocacy mean versus what I had to fight for in the 2000s versus what this person had to fight for in the 70s is vastly different. And to understand truly how anyone wants to become or advance their existing advocacy in the cancer space, we learn from history. And this is a true history series. I love it. And I think that's so true. I, I think whether you're looking at health history or you're looking at entrepreneur's history or nonprofit history, I mean, I think history really uh, does speak. And, and it, it's a uh, I'm really, really excited to see the series because uh, it come to life because I think that there's a lot of really important stuff in there that we can can all get a lot more educated on. So very, very cool. And Matt, you're so inspiring. So I really, really appreciate you coming on today for sure. Where do people find out more, first of all, on Offscript Media, but also on the new series, The Cancer Mavericks. Where do people get that? 
Well, like anything else, just Google the Cancer Mavericks and you'll see the website. You'll see it on iTunes, on Spotify. My show is called Out of Patience. We're going to get you on my show at some point soon so yeah. we can banter back and forth again because this is a great chemistry. Uh, I'm the only Matthew Zachary in podcasting, so I just type my name into any podcast platform I love and I'm it. there. And the Cancer Mavericks is available wherever you listen to podcasts. I love it. So great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We're here every Monday and Wednesday with cool and inspiring stories from founders and CEOs and authors and nonprofits and amazing, amazing, inspiring things that you hear on this podcast. So please give Matthew a five-star rating and download the episodes uh, and subscribe on Apple or Spotify, wherever. And hopefully you all will also follow me. And if you haven't read my book yet, Undaunted Overcoming Doubts and Doubters, I have to put my plug in there. And thank you everyone for coming and listening uh, this afternoon. And thank you, especially Matthew, for sharing your story. I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Kara. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.